Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Arts and Conversation podcast. My name is Makai Eastman, and this is Jadon Bell, who will be my co-host. Today, we actually have a very special thing that I want to highlight with the Black voices that need to be heard in the arts community. And our first couple of guests for this particular part of the series would be LJ, who's directly below me over here. And we have another friend at JWA who will be a few minutes late, but she'll join us frequently. But personally, LJ, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us. And frankly, I just wanted to, you know, kind of pick your brain and see what makes you tick as an artist. So you say you write plays, yes? Well, I do a couple of things. I'm a writer, um, but I would say, first and foremost, I'm a dramaturg, which is a, a profession that not a lot of people have ever heard of and that especially not a lot of Black people do. But um, basically what that means is I provide artistic research and context to uh, plays. So if you're a playwright, you're developing a new piece and you want to understand um, a little bit more context, maybe you need some additional research, or you want to even better understand how your play fits within to the larger canon of, of art, uh, then I help with that. Or if you're a director or producer and you're doing an existing piece, say you're doing an August Wilson show, uh, and uh, you know, let's just, I, I mean, I just got here, but let's just be honest. Uh, a lot of the people producing Wilson's work are white people. And, um, and so because of that, they'll hire somebody like me, a black person that's, uh, you know, specializes in research and history to come in and make sure that it's legit if they're doing it right. So uh, that's what I do. Um, mostly driven by a, um, a dedication to making sure that the performances that come before us, um, make sure that they're still in the contemporary conversation and that we're recognizing uh, the foundation on which we stand. Uh, so that's what, that's what I do as an artist. That's wonderful. Did you go to school for it or did you just, uh, how did you come about as a dramaturgy? Uh, so I'm a theater kid from way back. You know, I've always done church plays, Easter speeches, um, high school musicals. I did all of that. Um, my bachelor's degree is in theater. And then when I graduated, I thought I was going to go work on Broadway, become a producer, like right away. That did not happen. So um, I actually eventually became a teacher. I was a theater teacher. So I taught middle school and high school theater for five years. And, um, and that's when, you know, it clicked for me, honestly, you know, like how people can become empowered just from getting that education, just from, you know, being encouraged to pursue their art and, uh, and especially kids. So uh, after that experience, you know, I still had never heard of a dramaturg, but I decided to go back to school. So um, I ended up getting a master's in theater. I just graduated class of 2020. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. I graduated myself uh, just last month. <laughs> so, um, but it was during when I was in my program that I first heard of dramaturgy and, you know, even realized that there was a job like that out there. And, uh, and so it's been my mission ever since. That's great, you know. That's, that's such a cool job too. And it's so important. It's something that like a lot of people don't think of. Like even me earlier today, I didn't know what that was. And I asked Makai and he explained it. And I was like, huh, you know, now that you think about it, that's actually really important. I think it's very important. I think that uh, if you were talking about how to do equity, diversity and inclusion in these large institutions, then you have to start bringing in people like dramaturgs, you know, because they're not going to just create a full time job 
for black people all of a sudden like, oh, we got all the full-time staff positions for all the black people now, but you can make sure that, you know, you, you bring them in at the right level, you know? Yeah. Of course. And I think it's very imperative that we have someone like you in the room, especially since, you know, I'm a playwright director myself. And, you know, it, you had to have to take a step back and realize that there's a certain humility that's required to be successful in these productions and realize that you don't necessarily have all the answers. You can do as much research as you want, but, you know, having that outside perspective is going to help a lot because, you know, we have our own biases and things like that that we just unfortunately miss that we don't necessarily intend on missing, but it, it it's, it's that part of the mark that'll make the show more complete as a whole. And you mentioned that, you know, you, you'd be brought into something, for example, of an August Wilson show. Has that happened before? So my very first dramaturgy job was at Cal State Northridge, where I just graduated from. The undergrads were doing a production of Gem of the Ocean. And the only, we have like one black faculty member and that was the director, you know, her name is Christine Menzies, she's amazing. Oh. And uh, she, she directed a really beautiful production. But when I, when I heard they were doing that show, I volunteered myself because I felt that um, I felt like, you know, especially in a university setting, it was important that the students really have the opportunity to dig deep in this work, to have somebody who's familiar with the work, who understands black theater, help the, and so in support of the director and the actors, you know, and the designers, because of course there were no designers of color on the staff either. So, you know, that's when I first, that was the first time that I, um, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll try dramaturgy. Why not tackle Wilson right out the gate? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, it's crazy, but um, it was it was fun though. It was a really good experience. Uh, since then, though, mostly what I've done is new play development. Um, you mentioned that you were a playwright, and that um, you know it's good to have another perspective. One one way I like to think about it is in the and this comes from an article I read somewhere. If I remember to, I'll I'll send you a link or something, but. Basically, it was explained to me that in the typical play development process, you have a variety of white experiences at the table. You may have a white director, a white musical director, a white producer. The staff of the organization will be white as well. And so if you're a black playwright, you know, at the very least, you deserve to have a variety of black experiences giving you input on your piece. And so with, with, as a dramaturg, it's my job to be familiar with a variety of black experiences. And so, you know, you want to support the playwright in everything that they do. You just want to make sure that they have all the information that they need, you know what I'm saying, to, to properly contextualize their work, you know, so, they, so that, you know, you get my opinion, but you also, I bring with it, you know, theory, you know, previous performances, you know, that kind of thing. And it kind of just opens up the creative process, I think, you know. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's not only helpful for the directors and the playwright, but I think for the actors as well to be able to create a more accurate character, right? I mean, Janon, I don't know how many times you've probably walked into a role blind as an actor and how much research you had to do on your own, but how do yeah. you even begin to vet what is accurate information or what's actually going to help you in the long run? Yeah, exactly. It, it would have been so much easier if there was a person who was like, well, back then, this is how things would have been maybe you can try something along the lines of this maybe they can point me in the right direction instead of me just having to be like 
Okay, so got these words, and um, takes place in this time. So I'll just kind of look at pictures and kind of put my own little spin on how I'd feel, and I guess we'll hope for the best. Though so, you know, it 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 would have helped a ton. That's that's so cool. Like I know I said that already. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> You know, and dramaturgy's been around for centuries, you know, it's one of the very earliest jobs in the theater, you know, and it was written about by the Germans when they were talking about dramaturgy and, you know, Breck tried to redo it, you know, back when he was popular. But, you know, nowadays, it's, it really is surprising to me that it's not, um, it's not a job that a lot of people have, and especially in, in uh, you know, a so-called industry that's really trying to diversify, you know, whatever, right. you know, whatever they think that means, so... I definitely encourage more people to look into it, you know, and I definitely think that it's valuable. You know, at the end of the day, I, I serve the playwright, you know, and there's not a lot of people that do that. And, you know, with the director, you know, the actors, they kind of serve the director, the, the producer, that whole thing, and the playwright to a certain extent. But my job is to make sure that whatever the playwright is trying to say is coming across in the way that it's supposed to come across and that it's contextualized appropriately you know so if it's an established work you know I represent August Wilson you know I serve the playwright if it's a new work then you know I serve the playwright that's creating something new I love it it's a fun job I bet it sounds like it <laughs> now something that I really want to pick your brain on in terms of the ethics of a white production team putting on a historically black piece or something like that because I know you mentioned a great because I know you mentioned um you know having to come in for an August Wilson work and it, it just so happens that these predominantly white industries are continuing to say well look at what we're doing we're trying to help by us coming in and pushing these works to our audiences but you know it Who's going to direct it? Who's going to audition for it? I guess I got to direct it and I'm going to put out auditions and I'm going to have, you know, the quote unquote issue of, well, we're all the black actors and nobody's coming out. So I guess we're just either going to do it with all white people or we're going to have to cancel it. So what, I, I guess from your perspective, what would be the avenue to tackle that sort of issue that people keep constantly proposing in terms of, Listen, I'm trying to help, but we're all the black people. Oh, well, I tried. Here's my comment. Yeah. You know, that's theater, I feel like, is probably the furthest behind all of the other arts in terms of figuring out ways to be more inclusive. I could be biased on that. You know, I'm sure that I have musician friends and artists, fine artist friends that would disagree. But, um, you know, that's, I feel like when they do these, black shows with all white production staff, you know, that's what my mama would call lip service. You know what I'm saying? Like they saying the right things supposedly on the outside, they're doing the right thing. But if they, I mean, how hard is it to find a black director? How hard is it to find black actors? You know what I mean? Like, you know, I just started a little arts organization of my own and you know, it's all you do, you just, you just meet people, you know? And so if they say that they can't do that, it's because they're not trying. And, um, and, that's, and that's just what it is. You know, as far as what we as Black artists can do uh, to try to tackle that, I say, you know, get your money. You know what I'm saying? Like, go, go do that work if you need to, because bills are high. 
you know, the rent is too high. You understand? So, you know, I'm like, go out there and get that check. But if you're a director, let them know you need to hire a black dramaturg. You know, if they are acting like they can't find actors, you know, be like, listen, I can find actors for you. What a great opportunity to give an actor equity weeks. You know, just because an actor is not union doesn't mean they can't be in their show. You just have to be willing to give them them, give them an EMC credits. You know what I'm saying? And then that's how you expand the pool of black equity actors out there. You know, I mean, to me, it just seems like a two plus two equals four situation. And uh, anybody that can't do that math, I feel like it's probably just not really trying very hard. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I can directly, sorry, John, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was in a show years ago um, with a, um, a local like theater group around the community and I was just in high school. I was a junior in high school and it was literally as easy as the director going, hey, I need a black male this age range for my high school theater teacher to be like, here's two names. Yeah. And went to the audition the next day and I ended up getting it. But still, like it was that easy. There's so much talent out there, you know, being in a university setting, I see a lot of really young, talented black actors. I see a lot of really young, talented black designers, you know, like don't even get me started on the lack of black scenic designers, the lack of black lighting designers in like the mainstream. Because if you look at what their their work is really good, you know, so, you know, you would hope that they would be getting more, more gigs, but you know, there's a, there's a huge talent pool out there. And, um, you know, I, I go work, I'll go work for a large organization from time to time because I definitely, you know, need to pay my bills. Um, but what I'm focused on right now is, is trying to build something for, you know, for people of color, you know what I'm saying? Because when I see that talent pool, it's like, I just want to make sure that everybody's getting work, you know? So somebody's got to sit down and fill out the grant applications, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that we can get the money and spread it around. And so I think that that's, I think that that's what my focus is going forward. That's a really great thing to put on the forefront. And that's kind of how I started directing and writing because I was just sick and tired of being told no all the time. Yes. You know, I I started off as an actor uh, and it it was just so much of, not that I wasn't good enough for the role, I just wasn't the quote unquote right fit. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I'm just, not the type that the director was looking for. Mm. And that, after a certain point, I was like, well, am I ever gonna do a show? Well, I guess I gotta, <laughs> I gotta do my own shows. I gotta go ahead and sit down, I gotta write. I gotta, who's gonna direct it? I'll do it. Yeah. Who's gonna be the cast? That's when I pulled Jadon in, that's when I pulled some other friends in. And, you know, we'll just, we'll go from there. I can only really speak to the Central Florida theater community for the most, because that's where I've been the most active. But a lot of theaters don't pay their actors. And, well, (laughs) there's there's that. And it's a lot of community volunteer-based things, which, sure, that's okay. However, you know, they're expecting these very large time commitments or very minimal return. And then they turn around and say, well, we're all the black artists when people keep crying that there's no representation. However, you know, you look at the majority of black people who don't have time to be messing around. 
Like <laughs> these are barriers to entry, you know, they're barriers to entry and they've been up for so long that people don't even see them anymore. You know, at the end of the day, this idea, this volunteerism situation, the re listen, I've worked at a couple different nonprofit organizations and arts organizations and, um, these executive directors and artistic directors are pulling down six figures. Don't, don't get it twisted. You know, you go in here and they're making a hundred thousand, hundred ten thousand dollars a year, you know, but y'all can't figure out a way to pay actors without actors. You would have no, you would have nothing. You would, right. be, you would be what you are right now. Empty building. You feel me? <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, that's, that's what, again, I think it's like, it's, it's, it's simple math and anybody that's not adding it up just doesn't want to do it, you know? And even if you go into like the staff of a lot of these organizations, like the artistic director, the executive director is making six figures. And then there'll be like maybe three people at the top that are getting close to that. And then there's like a huge gap. And then everybody else is making like 45. <laughs> right. At the very high end. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm looking at job posts and they're like, oh, we need a company manager. Oh, we need a box office manager making 25 grand a year. I'm like, what? No. What no. world? But you know, that's, that's what black people tend to do as artists is we, we tend to create where we are. That's in our, you know, let me, don't get me started, but that is a part of our performance heritage. You know, you think about a time when it was illegal for us to read and write. We were still creative. There were still artists among us how did they express themselves? You know, was it through quilting? Was it through gardening? You know, so that's why we tend to be, that's, that's where our creative power, I think, comes from. It comes from the ability to, to improvise, to be flexible, to be creative, and to put on many hats. The question is, we need to figure out ways to fund that. That's what I think, mm. you know, and that's what I would like to do with my organization. Like, you know, you yeah these big guys they're gonna tell you no they they can't hire you to direct if you do want to make a show for yourself though you should still be able to do that like somebody should be able to come up with some money so that you can do that that's how i feel you know and i think that whatever you come up with would be better than whatever you would have came up with under that roof over there you know what i'm saying so uh how do you get the independent artist budget on the on level with the big organization's budget you know yeah. right yeah i i i pretty much like given up on uh being like a paid actor almost not not entirely but it's just like most most of the work i do are passion projects now it's yeah. something that's important to me as a person and then i'll step out and then i'll like act it's real hard at this point for me to just be like yeah let me tell my job that i need uh three, four days <laughs> off now and um, go work for you for free to do this little play about a turtle. Now, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's but not example. I just made that up, but like... <laughs> I like even then, because Jadon acts in a lot of my plays, but I still give you something. Like, yes! I'll, I'll pay for gas. I'll pay for food. <laughs> that's the thing, too. Like, if I work with the independent artist, I'll throw them some cash. Like, you know, what's the Venmo? These big guys, they don't even do that. Like they really no. want to be 100% volunteer. And to the point where somebody called me today actually and was like, oh, this theater company is gonna be doing this programming. And uh, look, let me keep it generic in case I need to take this job. But 
<laughs> I feel you. I feel you. They're like, they're going to be doing this programming and, uh, you know, they're going to, they just want different topics, different perspectives. And then she was like, it's paid. It's all paid. All paid. All paid. And I was like, you know who you're talking to. She's like, I know who I'm talking to. <laughs> Don't even hit my phone line. with this But, you know, I have, I have professors that tell me that that's uh, silly. They're like, you know, we all do unpaid work in this field. I've, there, you know, I've had two professors whose opinions I really, really, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Two opinions I really, you know, take seriously. Yeah. And they're like, you know, you, you say that, but that's just not how it works. And, you know, you're, you know, you're young in the game. You'll see. I'm like, I'm not going to see nothing. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. one of those, it's like, why are you so okay with demanding hundreds of hours from people for nothing other than personal satisfaction and a little tick on a resume that right. nobody's gonna look at you know yeah. like you think you think this big broadway producer is gonna care that you did this little show in this hundred seat theater about a squirrel yeah i mean i can work for free for myself you know right. if i'm gonna make something if i'm gonna do something creative and not get paid for it i'd rather make something for myself you know exactly. That's why I do a lot of Makai's shows because it's like, he's my best friend. I know it's super important to him. It's super important to me because all of his shows have a message that we want to convey. So I don't even care. It's like, okay, I got to drive to Tampa. Sure, I'll drive to Tampa. I'll do the show because it's important to me. I get something out of it internally because yeah. it's so hard to get something out of theater physically unless you're already established. Yeah. And, you know, don't, don't short sight the in-between, you know, every once in a while you'll take that gig that maybe doesn't pay much, but will pay you something. And in return, maybe you get networking opportunities or you get to create something you're passionate about, you know, those little jobs like that. I, most of the stuff that I do is stuff like that. And it adds up, you know, it really, really does. You get to meet awesome people that will bring you in on other projects. So don't, I mean, the, the in-between jobs are good too, you know? Um, so there's none of that free stuff though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk real quick about your organization. Um, it's Maroon Arts, yes? Yeah, Maroon Arts and Culture. Yes. Um, you know, I'm a history nerd, so we are named after the communities of rebel slaves. You know, a lot of people, when they think about slavery and escaping to freedom, they think about going to the North. But imagine, you know, there was so much time when the, the, there was no freedom in the North either. Mm -hmm. It's slavery all around you. And, and they still ran, you know, and they created communities in the forest and the swamps and, um, that were safe spaces. And they just, you know, they were marooned from the rest of civilization. And in these spaces, art mixed, traditions mixed, rituals, food, customs, all these things mixed and mingled and created beautiful communities and so that's what we're trying to do with maroon and uh so we we carry we take that that naming seriously and we hope that we can continue that tradition yeah how long have you been doing it uh we're only one year old we're very very young and um you know most of what we have planned for this year obviously we had to switch it change it rearrange it so we're still, we're still working through um but you know, a lot of what we're focusing right now is curriculum. You know, uh, 
figuring out a way to teach arts and to teach black history in uh, a school system that's no longer meeting in person you know for a long time people have wanted their kids to be able to learn black history in school during school hours and if people are going to be at home we want to try to give them an opportunity to teach that to their kids and so we're really focusing right now on like educational initiatives um current writing curriculum lesson plans that kind of thing and uh maybe an event in the fall in car event okay wonderful yeah i actually saw this meme about theater in the COVID 19 you know landscape and it was this in the round performance with a bunch of cars and it was people <laughs> in the center and they were doing that play. I was like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you have a theatrical mind, you can figure out something fun for no, a yeah, show. Absolutely. But Make what it. you just described does not sound very theatrical. No. <laughs> it sounds like a, a lot of uh, coordination of making a perfect circle with cars. <laughs> just imagine everybody just trying to like parallel park themselves if they're late and it's yeah. that's a hassle but so um, you make theater so how have you had to like adapt to the circumstances zoom yeah yeah zoom is really the uh the answer to a lot of that i i'm in a zoom production with this theater called art rat theater company and they're actually based in california and you know, there, there's that sense of community that we have to impose through the little screens here. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge overall, especially as an actor, because it's like, well, you know, how do we accurately listen to each other when there's a delay in Zoom, especially if you're watching it, but also, you know, how do we pick up these subtle little nuances that are just missed from being in person? Right. So there's that, and we, uh, I wrote a play called Snowball, which we did a year and a half ago for a workshop, and it got picked up by this theater in Rochester, and we're doing it over Zoom as well, and I got a couple other things lined up for little 10-minute festivals. So at the very least, it's a good thing of, you know, these people who I never would have had the chance to interact with, you know, we can, they can bring us together and build that community that way. But, you know, obviously there is a, there's an element of personability that's gonna be taken out by being disconnected through Zoom. But it's, yeah. it's an interesting landscape that we're going into. It's hard, the, the energy transfer, you know, you miss that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, think, I think Zoom will help a lot with like rehearsals too, in case like you've got somebody who let's say doesn't live in the same town but is in your show and is going to be there the night of the show but can't make like a lot of the rehearsals like i've done a couple of shows for makai where like i live in orlando he lives in tampa and basically i drive there a couple of hours before the show and then i'd work with everybody that i'm working with for a second and we'd like really quickly like okay 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 so we can do this we can do this we can do this cool and we made the show happen but like <laughs> Yeah. But like now, it's like, cool, I could just call in, I could do the lines here, I can already kind of see how everybody's oh. delivering their lines and stuff like that. And then I'll have more of a game plan. So when we do finally get in for those couple hours, it's really only like a couple bits of polish work. Right. A, I never thought about that. <laughs> I just thought about it just now. It's amazing that this technology <laughs> like, has been available this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, because again, we really could have changed a lot of the way that we did things when I did my readings in Tampa and you had to come an hour and a half of the distance. We could have rehearsed over Zoom. Yep. <laughs> I just thought about it. Like, as we were talking about it, I was like, huh, you know what? <laughs> so much theater, though. You believe it's all about this, like, can-do spirit. Like, we all got to come together, put on a show to save the town kind of thing. So <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of like the, the, the aesthetic of the theater. But I think that we're, with this whole thing, we're being pulled into uh, the, techno the technology age, you know whether we yeah. like it or not so yeah it's a it's like it's like that phrase um you either go with progress or you'll get ran over by it you know eventually and that's the truth that's you gotta the truth. catch up <laughs> that's my message for the american theater <laughs> i swear man i swear also on that note uh, i was talking about it a little earlier with the hamilton film that just came out on disney plus and there are a lot of opinions as to whether or not recordings of these Broadway shows would be available to the masses. I wanted to know what you might think of that. About the Broadway shows being available or about Hamilton? <laughs> the Broadway shows being available. <laughs> Don't have time to unpack Hamilton, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Um, about the shows being broadcast? Yeah. I'm all for accessibility. I believe that... Um, as many people should see the work as possible. Um, if you're not, if you, I, listen, I got a whole master's degree in theater and I ain't never seen Hamilton live because those tickets are ridiculously expensive. And, mm -hmm. and uh, there's, there's no amount of dramaturgy gigs I can pick up that will justify that expense. <laughs> so, you know, had that, had that recording not been available, then some, I would have never, I may be, would have never seen it and so i think that that's important i think it's important though for to make sure that everyone's paid appropriately for it you know that's my whole thing i you know i'm i'm lindsay get paid jenkins so <laughs> i've been watching you know the streaming rights and you know how different actors negotiated for their pay for that and you know lynn manuel what he got paid for it too and it's you know if it's if it's going to be an add-on to the live theater experience then it's got to be an additional check for everybody involved including the actors so that's kind of how I feel about that. Um, you know, I've been watching Broadway bootlegs for years. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know, because I was just like, do we, is this really such a big debate? Because you think about how many people don't have the opportunity to see these shows at all. Oh, hi, Jaylen. Hello, everyone. Hi. 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 We Thank were just talking that. about um, accessibility <laughs> with, with streaming rights. Yeah, using Hamilton as the example since it's the most recent example. Of course. Yeah, yeah. but welcome. Good to have you, of course. Um, what I was saying was that, you know, there's such a big debate because we're looking at Hamilton, right? And this is arguably one of the most successful shows that's ever been on any Broadway stage because, you know, they had the production in New York and Chicago and London, a national tour and an international tour. It's a money monster. Like. Of course. And, you know, there are plenty of people who are advocating that, you know, this is the death of live theater because if you can see it from home, why would you want to go out to, you know, 
a theater in New York or anything. But frankly, there are a lot of people who never had the chance to, to go see it even if they wanted to. You know, you get up at five in the morning because you're staying with your aunts in the middle of the Bronx and you get dressed and you get on the train to go to Midtown so you can get there by hopefully 7.30, maybe eight o'clock. And then that's when the line for the rush ticket starts. You'll wait in line for a few hours. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> get up there. And they're like, ooh, man, just missed it. We sold the last ticket for $72. However, we do have some extra seats for discounted price of $230. Yeah, right? Exactly. My whole thing is, that whole death of live theater thing, it's... That's such that's such a weird concept to me because live theater will never die. Anybody who does live theater knows words hit different when you're there to hear them in person. Lines will hit you different versus whether you see them on film or you're there watching it happen live. Mm -hmm. So that's just something to me that just makes me laugh because it's like, no. People will never not want to go see plays. Just make things more accessible to people who can't go see plays. Exactly. I have a friend that actually was like, oh my gosh, I saw Hamilton. I loved it. Next time it's here, I've got to go see it in person. Exactly. Like, so if, if anything, it could be like broadening your audience, which isn't that what all these little conversations are supposed to be about? Like, how do you, you know, widen your audience? So I definitely, I think that, I mean, I think it's a great thing, but that's why, that's why I don't have a problem with Broadway bootlegs because it's elitist anyway. So mm -hmm. <laughs> they're still going to get their money at the end of the day. They're going to get their exactly. money. Exactly. <laughs> no one who's seen a Broadway bootleg says, okay, now I'm good. I'm never going to go see it. That everyone yeah, who right. watches always says, great. Now I can't wait to go see it in person the day I could ever afford it. Right. Yeah, like, I got money for one ticket. Let me figure out what it's going to be first. Like, I, like, I shall, I, I mean, I, you know, I've seen a Broadway bootleg and been like, oh, I'm glad I did not pay to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I've won right. so much money, you know, I'm not going to see everything. So, yeah, I'll make the argument that nine out of ten people who are watching bootlegs are watching them because they can't see it in person. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. So, it's not like, you know, that's a, somebody's not sitting in the high rise. Manhattan apartment, you know, looking overlooking Central Park when they can basically see <laughs> Midtown just down the street. I'm like, hmm. Um, let me look at this uh, legally blonde <laughs> bootleg. Right. Before I. Even though it's right over there. And then, uh -huh, I pulled the one on the feet away. I'm not gonna lie to you though. When I was a middle school teacher, I may or may not have played a Broadway bootleg <laughs> in class on occasion. That's educational. It is. That's exactly. That's how like, you get them. Like, I mean, yeah. Kids, they all started because someone got them a bootleg, or they were so lucky that maybe their class went to go see something. Like, the earlier you get them, yes. that's how you get the ones who are devoted for life. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're welcome, establishment. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a beautiful little mini segue into a Jawa since you're a playwright. Oh, yes. Hi. Hi. Hello. Uh, my name is Ajaywa Asante. Um, I was born in Albany, New York, moved around a lot, um, but I got to spend a chunk of like my teen years in Ghana, um, which was where I started writing and doing theater. Um, actually, my school's like first 
production we ever did was of Annie, which was very interesting set in Ghana. <laughs> um, but it was like really what, where I like got that first bite. Um, then moved here to Maryland, um, went to the University of Maryland. Well, was first studying public health because I was a good African child and was going to be a doctor. Um, the doctor classes did not want me and I was like, cool, switched over to theater and, you know, started with performance, started writing. I'm like, oh, this is where I want to be. This is where I'm meant to be. Um, so I've been in the Maryland area since Maryland, D.C. area working in the theater. Um, I was just working with uh, Roundhouse Theater as their literary assistant because I just love to read and absorb plays and have been here for a while. Yeah. So thank you for having me. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for coming. So the overall conversation is, you know, highlighting black voices. That's the, that's really what I'm trying to do with this podcast and reaching out to everybody. So I really want to ask you about, you know, as a playwright, what have been experiences that were valuable to you in terms of teaching lessons that you're able to keep with you for the rest of your life and the things that help you as an artist? Just um, Yeah, I think something that I really appreciated about uh, the theater was just how quickly you can make theater happen as long as you have a group of people who are interested and excited. Um, literally like my first 10 minute play was just like, hey guys, we have this little student thing. I've written this thing. I've never written a script before, but hey, you're having trouble getting cast in plays. You're get having trouble getting cast in plays because you know we have that one black show a year. So if you don't make the overstudy or the understudy class, there's really nothing for you. So, hey, I have these beautiful two black friends who I want to see work and I just got them in. We did it. We had one of my friends. She's a director. She did it. And we were able to make theater happen. I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is quick. This is fast. This can happen. And that was really exciting. And since then, I was like, oh, if I want to make this happen, I have to do it myself, which was some. And as someone who's like, I've always been like, you know, straight A student working through the establishment, that's always been like, how I think you succeed by getting acceptance from whoever has the power I'd be. But there's something about theater that allows you to have that greater access, easier than TV, easier than film, to create what you want to create. As long as you've got bodies in this space, you are creating theater, whether it's on Broadway, off Broadway, off, off, off Broadway, in your living room, in a Zoom, Skype reading, whatever, you are creating theater that way. And I've found that's been really liberating and it's been really wonderful to see since, you know, things have been shutting down. How many of my friends are just like, hey, where there's just a group of us together. We are, we just want to do this. We want to hear each other's voices. We want to, there's this play that we've always wanted. We've never got to see it done. We never got to see it performed. We're going to do it for ourselves. And there's so much power in like hearing black voices deciding to make those decisions for themselves. And I think that's also what you know, with the current reckoning is needed because we're going through a huge reckoning, both racially and also with like issues with sexual harassment. They're like, hey, this thing we've been pretending has been working all this time is not. All this lip service about, you know, you're going to do your one August Wilson play and oh, we're going to be representative. Oh, look, y'all, we did Intimate Apparel. Yay. Like, that's not enough anymore. <laughs> so, hey, know, look, we're doing Othello. <laughs> So we're gonna make it black. Or, Can I also just point out how funny it is that everything you just said was in summation of what we were talking about for the last half hour. Literally, <laughs> literally, from, so from August though. Wilson <laughs> to all of it. <laughs> but I think that just speaks volumes to the fact of you know our experiences are so 
vastly alike, even though they come from very different pools of the pond. And isn't yeah. that isn't that something that should be very I don't know, uh, very loud to the people who are continuing to be like, well, and I, I mentioned this before, my favorite question of how can I help? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the mystery. We are learning. I was like, we've been talking, like, that's like the whole thing with the whole, oh, we're going to take Aunt Jemima off the, that's like, great, but yeah, let's right. listen to <laughs> Yeah, can, can we get some laws passed, please? <laughs> we get some actual structural change? I don't need that old episode of the Golden Girls off. That's not doing Why? anything right now. I hate it so what you can do to help me is hire me. That's what everybody asks me. What can I do to help? Like, hire me. Like, yeah. it's really yeah. that cool. Start paying <laughs> us. Super qualified. <laughs> like, what's the problem? <laughs> and that's something I feel like I was really spoiled with, like, getting to be in Ghana during the time that I was. I was, like, between 12 and 16. And that was the first time, like, surrounded by people that look like me all the time. Like, yeah. to be surrounded by, like, oh, I'm... Like, that's the idea of, like, being Black is so, like, not a thing there, because why would you define something that we all are? We're just, you know, we can go into tribalism or your family's from, stuff like that, but, like, Blackness is never a thing that you need to define. So just getting to, like, know that that is possible, like, in a space that I can just, whatever way I have to define myself, it has doesn't have to be by my Blackness, and that I can have a space where I'm surrounded by people that look like me who are doing this shit like the whole country is running just fine like it's going on so we can do that here but it's all the gatekeeping and all the excuses and it's really no one wants to let go of the power that they have they're like we mm-hmm. want to give you what we can as long as it's not too inconvenient to us they're like yes be an artistic director just don't take my spot <laughs> right. Yeah. right it's it's the marie antoinette's let them eat cake exactly. like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is what it is. It's just give them people are starving in the streets, and you're just like, ah, give them some cake, cake, cake. Did you want two slots? Okay, give them two plates. Okay, right. Like, you're welcome. Here's my diversity cookie. And it's just so frustrating when you just like, especially like on the administrative level, when you see like there's the one token black person who now has a responsibility of trying to be the EDIA diversity counselor, whatever. So they're like, great, we did it. We promoted someone, but now you've taxed them with this entire responsibility to make you guys not be racist. And you're not going to listen to them. And they still have to do the work. And then also still be the artistic responsibility. But you also get the prize of, see, look what we did to our Negro. Look at this decision we made for them. Yeah, I've gotten to the point now where I have um, a couple of friends that do that work, diversity and inclusion work. And now if somebody asks me to do that kind of thing, I just give them a referral. I'll be like, oh, let me refer you to my friend. This is our, this our job. Yeah. <laughs> qualified. Right. You know? Here's my qualified friend who can do this. You know? But they're like, oh, no, you're a person of color. You're black. You're this. You should automatically be said. I'm like, no, I if, I, if someone came and said, I just wanted to do the work, I just wanted to do the thing that I was hired here to do, I want to do that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You have the Orlando Fringe Festival. In- oh, I wanted to bring this up so bad. I was wondering if you were going <laughs> to. In Central Florida. And, you know, they pride themselves on 
the idea that anyone can cringe. That's their slogan. And I appreciate over the last couple of weeks, you know, they've really taken a step back. And I think personally that they're doing the right thing in terms of they have these bi-weekly Zoom calls. And I mean, of course, the board looks how you might think the board would look like. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, really, really evaluating themselves and say, okay, well, we have the power to be able to reinvent this whole system. How legitimately how do we do this? And I appreciate the fact of they are listening to us, but they're not leaving it to us to fix their issues. Right. And it's real tangible things that they're trying to implement because they have this thing called diversity lottery. Um, just a little bit of background before that. The Orlando Fringe is uh, decided by lottery. They have a couple hundred productions and you know you put your name in the application and there's an application fee but you put your name in the application and they write it on little pieces of paper they have this big event for the lottery and they just you know roll it in the big machine and they pull out your name now somehow some way they keep falling into the trap of it's the same production companies that kind of show up every year mm-hmm. and it's usually mm-hmm. these larger how do they do, they do that with the lottery? yeah right that's that's the big question the same guys get shows every year to the point where as they're doing one show one year they're advertising the show they're gonna do next year lottery hasn't even happened yet but somehow they just kind of know that they Got the shove next year. I mean, I look, I'm not saying nothing. I'm just that's egregious. But there are different spheres for different venues. And I think that's kind of how they get that because I forgot the exact colors. They had set the red, blue, brown, green venue. But those are the the sizes of theaters and the money that you have to pay in order to be able to use that theater. And something that I brought up as well, you know, you're looking for more diverse audiences. However, money is really the key issue for a lot of these things because Jadon and I did a friend show by the skin of our teeth a couple of years ago. We didn't get into the lottery. We didn't even get to the diversity lottery. And by the way, the diversity lottery is when they have, they have, I think it was eight spots. I may, I may not be exactly with that, but they have eight spots, eight spots for anybody who is, you know, considered to be a marginalized group, which is a big spectrum of people mm-hmm. they even they include well over a hundred shows take place at this fe- festival different shows they have eight slots eight slots yep, and that's for, for black people latino asian Asians. um lgbtq women if, if you were if you've been oppressed <laughs> in the last 400 years you can apply for that lottery and the facial expression is killing me. <laughs> Man, listen. <laughs> and we were like, well, all right. Um, there's a lot of double dipping that could happen. And especially since, you know, okay, we're looking at the Central Florida community. Uh, the, you know, the LGBTQIA uh, community is very prominent, especially in the theater world. So you got these people who are able to apply for that diversity lottery and take away a black voice and take away, uh, you know, or even, God forbid, a black woman's voice out of that because they have a show 
that is vaguely about being a. It doesn't have to be about being oppressed as long as you are. That was my question. A company that mm-hmm. you know promotes it because I can be you know white and gay, and I can then have my uh, top tier show that I applied for in the I'm going to say the red venue and that lottery. But I'm also going to apply for diversity lottery to double my chances. And that was something that we needed to address because, listen, there's a lot of overlap that happens and it's just contributing to the erasure of our voices in general. Then you turn around saying, well, you know, we only had uh, two black artists even apply for the diversity lottery. Well, yeah, because that goes into the same issue of the money being a very high barrier of entry. Because not only did my production that I did a couple of years ago not make it into the larger thing, but we got into the bring your own venue portion and we had to pay about $800 in total to be able to do $100 of performance and not even pay for the venue fees. And the amount of money that we raised from that show was $32. Yeah, when you bring your own venue, it's yeah. it, you're basically dead on arrival because there's this big lawn with all these shows connected and theaters, and the bring your own venue is just a venue that is somewhere else. Yeah. It could be down the street, it could be like around the corner, but the point is, it's not where all the other shows are, so it's very unlikely that people will even go out to see it in the first place. It's so interesting. This, this is not, I think this is not unique necessarily to the Orlando Fringe. I know a lot of Fringe festivals that operate exactly like this, um, except they don't even bother to pretend to have a lottery. It's just <laughs> somehow the same people end up in Fringe every year. You know, and that's in Texas or California where I live now. So then, you know, I think also another big barrier is like a, a lack of an infrastructure. Like, these these people are production companies, they're organizations, they're theater companies. And so they have more money, they've got more resources, they've got more contact. They've got a storage where they could just go pull some flats if they need yeah. them. You know what I'm saying? Like stuff like mm-hmm. that. Can't relate. It's hard, you know? I think that that's a big part of it. I was wondering though, do they, is there, can you apply, can you, how many, is there a limit to how many entries in the lottery you get? Uh, it's one per production company, yeah. Per company mm-hmm. or per production? Per company? Like if a production well, company has three shows, can they enter for each show? I, mean, I don't know, but I don't, I'm not sure if that's ever happened. I'm just trying to hack how they're getting through this lottery situation. Right. And again, yeah. I think it's the biggest thing is the tiers that you're applying for. Because mm-hmm. I know that I'm not going to be able to afford that tier one Ooh, uh, $1,500 of performance and yeah. then have the actual capability to bring in an audience to be able to offset that cost and then bring in, you know, actors and writers or whatever to be able to make it even worthwhile. Because again, like I said, that production, it was a good production. It was critically reviewed very well, but it was a financial disaster. I lost three grand from just being able to do a show with a desk and a whiteboard and a fridge in the corner. Yep. We had a fridge in the corner? We did have a fridge in the corner. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was already there. We just didn't move it. Yeah, we didn't move it. Like, we didn't use it. Yeah, it was my mini fridge. It was my mini fridge for my freshman year dorm. Okay. 
See, there are just so many things that like, you know, on the surface, on paper, it looks equitable, it looks charitable, it looks like all these things. But when you put it into practice and actually acknowledge the context of the world that these things are set up in, it does not work. It's the same thing with like, all these like apprenticeship and internship setups are like, oh, we, it's open to everyone, anyone can do it. Then you also realize you're paying these young people who are trying to start a career $100 a week with no housing. Who's going to be able to afford that? Yeah, Who's that do that? exactly. Oh my God, I'm so glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's <sighs> for me because I just did one. It's, and it only worked because I can live at home. I'm just happy I have family that happens to live close enough that I could afford to do that. And I was still working two to three other part-time jobs while I was also doing the apprenticeship. Yeah. Well, another apprentice of mine was like, he was set, he was financially set because he was a rich white guy who came from rich white parents and could do this no problem. And then you wonder why I'm the only black person here, why there's only other one other black person on staff, because you have set it up from the bottom. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I, Makai and I, probably have little silent cries about theater internships at least once every two weeks like we were just like how does this how does this happen the <laughs> how last internship i did and the last internship i will ever do uh was at this opera company in new york and i loved them to death and i, I love the people i work with the the production staff and the administrative staff all wonderful people i met the love of my life at that internship however <laughs> however it was i was on the stage operations crew and we worked just the same amount as the staff did and uh it was about 60 70 hour weeks and we got paid 250 a week in a meal stipend with housing so that ultimately on average we made about four dollars an hour on the high end of things and Sending that money back to, you know, pay rent for when I started the school year up again because I had to move into my apartment and then at the very next day I had to get on a plane and head over there. But that was sending that money back to pay the rent. I also had to pay my phone bill. I had about maybe 50 bucks left over out of that 250 a week to pay for food. And thankfully, you know, I had a friend who was able to give me rides back and forth from our residence because otherwise I would have had to walk. I truly could not pay for anything to travel. And it's, it's, it's crazy how they set up these systems that are specifically made and designed to keep affluent white people in. And then wonder where all the black people are when it's time to, you know, called out for not being diverse enough. Yeah, like a hundred percent. I did an internship during my undergrad uh, I won't say when because y'all don't need to know how old I am. <laughs> but um, that's fine. That's fair. The only reason I could do it is because I took out a student loan. You know, I made sure that I took out a student loan and saved it so that I could cover my expenses for the summer. And so when I look at my student loan bill that I pay right now, you know, 10 years later or so, 10 or so years later, you know, it's like I'm still paying for experiences that I did for free you know, a long time ago. And, I, you know, that it, they're all just barriers to entry. You know, some of the some of these theater companies get it right, you know, they'll pay their interns, they'll pay for assistantships, and that kind of thing. But then they only have one, you know, they only yeah. have one. And then yeah. that makes it even more competitive. And when it gets to be competitive like that, then it gets even harder for black people to get in. 
I think another big barrier that people don't talk about is nepotism, networking, knowing somebody that knows somebody. You know, you could be as talented as you want to be, and you can have all the credentials that you have and all the assistantships. But at the end of the day, people are more likely to hire people that they know or people that they that know somebody they know. And so when you're coming into an industry where there's just not a lot of people that look like you, that I think is a really big barrier right there. You know, you can get almost there, you know, you can get to the door. But once you get there, if you don't know somebody that knows somebody, it's hard to stay. Yeah. I'll say that. So I, you know, I just had a good idea though. Oh. We should run a counter a counter fringe festival. Like we should pick like some cities and whenever they do their fringe, we do another fringe. <laughs> a fringe on the fringe. Oh, a fringe wow. on the fringe. Ooh shit. Yeah, That'd like, be some David and Goliath stuff, but uh, I hear it out. <laughs> well, if you really want to do some like people of color centered work, then just pull the white audience somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? And then that takes away some of the worry. Okay. Yeah. Power and like, that. it's so very frustrating that we always have to do our own thing, but a lot of times we just have to do our own thing, like just to. Agreed. We yeah, talking about this, you know, I feel like that's part of the beauty of the black aesthetic is like that's how we create. We create where we are. And you know, what if we if we and what I was saying earlier is like if we have to do our own thing, the question is how do we get the budget? You know, how do we get people to fund these things that we want to do? You know, like let's keep creating for ourselves, but like how do we pay for it? <laughs> yeah. Still a capitalist society, no matter what you want to do with the work. <laughs> but I also feel like we're stronger as a community. And so I think that a lot of these arts institutions are uh, on borrowed time because, you know, I'm sure, you know, just like I know, you look at your season subscribers, they're all 85 years old. They're, you know, 95 year old white people and the clock is ticking on them. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent agreed. So what, what are these institutions going to do when their subscriber base dies, dies off? I know it sounds very harsh to put it like this, but, you know, I believe the ancestors are with us every day. So, you know, we might as well just be honest about it. So when their subscriber base dies off, how will they sustain? You know, no. how will they sustain? Yeah, 100% agreed. 100% agreed. Like, I'm, I'm a big wrestling fan, right? And something very similar is happening in wrestling right now. WWE, the big company. Um, it's very clearly like they don't push newer up-and-coming talent over the old guard that's just getting older for all the people who were like oh I saw them as a kid and the question that always pops into my head is all right what are you gonna do when those people aren't buying tickets and now these kids have to buy tickets they don't have anybody to hold towards and it's the same thing yeah. like it applies to the exact same way when all these people inevitably go away because you know only two things guaranteed, death and taxes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, who are the younger people going to want to go see? A Lin-Manuel Miranda here and there, if they can afford it. But, like, they get to. there's not going to be much else because nothing really appeals to them or us or whoever, you know? Yeah, and there's no, there's no, it's too expensive, you know, the way that yeah. it is right 
right now. You know, I, you know, with this arts organization that we've started, we've decided that we probably maybe an office one day, but we don't have any intentions on having a physical space. I just don't think that that's necessary in modern theater and especially post coronavirus, you know, like <laughs> all these theaters are, are like struggling to pay their rent that their houses be empty a lot of the times when they do shows anyway. So, you know, not being held to a physical location or even a specific geographical location. You know, why can't an arts organization produce a counter fringe festival in Orlando? You know, why not? It's, yeah. it's 2020, we have all this technology available to us, all these electronic payments available to us, you know? So I personally believe that as an arts community, um, you know, we're stronger in numbers and I would much rather like fundraising, like a fundraising strategy. I'd rather ask a hundred people for $5 than one person for $500. Cause when that one person dies off, what you gonna do? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's kind of, that's how I feel. You know, we can, we got to create where we are and we just kind of have to figure out a way to support one another. And then if we do it that way, it'll be stronger. I wholeheartedly yeah. agree. You know, it's a, uh, it's a very complicated issue. And as, as you can see, and unfortunately, you know, we're kind of pushed the time limit as to how much we can unpack. But specifically, I want to just kind of pick the three of you to say, you know, if you had to leave one piece of advice or inspiration through what you've been through for people who look like us and who are coming up behind us to be able to pick up where we left off way down in the future, you know, what would you have to say to them? Um, I don't know who wants to start. I think you did. All right, whatever, <laughs> I'll start this fine. I don't care. Um, I guess if I had to give some advice to people in the future, it's just don't forget. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget your experiences. Because, like, as an actor, I don't, I don't write anything. I don't direct anything. I just act sometimes. But, like, the my strongest characters come from things that I can draw on and how things have made me feel. So, and, you know, as a black actor, not a lot of people have uh, the same experiences. Not a lot of these other guys, you know what I mean? So don't forget, don't forget them. Remember how everybody made you feel. Remember how every role made you feel. Use it for the future. Just kind of stack them up. Uh, I would say that, um, you know, don't let anybody tell you what you can and cannot do uh, because they'll try. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I got. You know, people will try to tell you what you are and are not capable of. But in my personal experience, I find that if you look back to, the, to history, you'll see what you are truly capable of. And, um, and that's a better barometer than whatever somebody's trying to tell you in your face right now. And I'd say, uh, find, find your people. Um, I think it was Issa Rae who was talking about, you know, when people talk about networking, they're always like, find the person above you, but really also find the person who's next to you. Find, these are your partners. These are the people who are going to be going on this journey with you, who have this experience with you, connect with them and build with them because you're stronger in number. And specifically to young black playwrights, I say, have confidence in your voice. Your voice matters don't sell it short and also remember you know you are not just what you're writing is not just for you it's going to be for the actors and for the directors people who want to see new and beautiful work that represents you and it's also going to represent them so never sell yourself short you're doing something that is the foundation of what theater is okay. 
and I really appreciate your talent to be able to wrap things up in very succinct <laughs> manners because I think if we had to put a little button on everything we've spoken about over the last hour, it would be your voice matters. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Thank you yeah. all so very much.